Welcome to episode number 97 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. This is the fifth and final episode of our infrastructure series, which has been a blast for me to host. I've learned a lot about this very important topic. I am your host, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering. So since then, I've written a book called Engineer Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. And through this podcast, myself and my co-host, Chris Knutson, try to bring you information in every episode that can help you succeed. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. Here's a short preview of this episode in which I'll be speaking with Michael Maines, a young engineer who has had a tremendous amount of experience on global tunneling projects. You know, whenever you're making an international move, it's always a huge decision. And there's a lot of thought that goes into it. But at the end of the day, the experience that you're getting from working in different countries and seeing how different engineers do different things and different construction methods in different areas, the experience that you can gain from that, it's hard to overstate, in my opinion. My co-host Chris and I both believe that in order to be the best civil engineer you can be, you must consistently get better. Get better at your craft, get better at working with people, and get better as a leader overall. And that's why we publish this free podcast to help you do just that. In this episode, which I mentioned earlier, is the last episode in our five-episode infrastructure series. I'll be speaking with Michael Maines, a 29-year-old civil engineer who specializes in the design of heavy civil underground infrastructure, specifically tunnels and large underground openings in the transportation and water resources sectors. He holds a master's degree in civil engineering and is professionally licensed in California and British Columbia. Michael has worked on major projects in Canada, the U.S., and Australia, and most recently moved to Paris, France, to work on the Grand Paris Metro Expansion, which is currently the largest infrastructure project in all of Europe, 200 kilometers of new metro lines with 68 new underground stations. A pretty amazing resume for a 29-year-old, huh? Before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free, so please support them. And we've had two awesome sponsors for this infrastructure series. Firstly, I'm happy to introduce to you our Civil Engineering Podcast Infrastructure Series sponsor, Red Vector. Red Vector of Vector Solutions brand is a leading provider of online continuing education and performance support solutions for the architecture, engineering, construction, and facilities management fields. When you train with Red Vector, you'll be in good company with the other industry-leading organizations and professionals who have chosen to reduce risk, ensure compliance, hone skills, and meet their CE or PDH requirements. More on Red Vector later on in this episode. Let me take a moment to tell you about Danfoss, our other infrastructure series sponsor. Danfoss is a company that is focused on building the sustainable communities of the future. They dream up and manufacture a lot of the solutions that go into all kinds of different infrastructure systems. They call it engineering tomorrow. As we've been discussing here on the show, we need smarter infrastructure solutions to support urban centers as they grow. Danfoss has a project that is all about that, and I'll tell you a little more about it later on in the episode. 
Now, let's dive into our civil engineering conversation of the week. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our conversation of the week in this fifth and final episode in our infrastructure series. And I want to welcome in Michael Maines, who is coming to you from Paris, France. Michael, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. All right, Michael. So you're here on this infrastructure series, the last episode, and most of the people that we've interviewed to date are executives or CEOs, 20, 30, 40 years experience in some cases. And I wanted to have you on because you're coming at it from a younger experience level, but you've also had some international work. So why don't you start by just introducing yourself to our audience and giving them a little bit of your career progression? So I grew up in a small mountain town in Canada and eventually moved to Montreal to study civil engineering at McGill University. Throughout the summers, you know, I worked construction, kind of nothing in an engineering capacity, mostly labor and roofing. But right after I graduated, I moved back to Vancouver and started an engineering job with a local geotechnical consultant. Now, at the time in Vancouver, there was sort of a building boom and there was a ton of residential high rises. And every time that you build a high rise, you need to build a hole to put the underground parking. And some of these excavations were quite extensive. You know, some of them were up close to 100 feet deep. I really started to get got into the uh, kind of design and construction supervision of these short excavations. And that's really where I started to get into the soil structure interaction type space. I worked there. And then in 2014, I decided I wanted to pursue a master's degree in geotechnical engineering. So I did that at the University of British Columbia, and I did it kind of in parallel with work working, which ended up being a lot of work, but very rewarding as well. And at that same time, I was pursuing my professional licensure in British Columbia. In 2015, I graduated from there and decided to move to San Francisco for personal and professional reasons, where I started working with a local firm, uh, Macmillan Jacobs Associates. And it's then that I really started to get into this tunneling industry and working on larger infrastructure projects, both in California and Canada and in Australia. So I worked there for two years and then again decided that for professional and personal reasons, I was going to make another move. And I moved to Paris, France and got a job at a very large construction company called Afage Construction. They're one of the five largest in Europe, actually. And now I'm working on the Grand Paris Metro project, which is the largest transportation infrastructure project in Europe. In a sense, I think for some 30-year-old civil engineers, you just laid out their dream first 10 years of their career. <laughs> Basically, you got some great education. And we haven't talked about some specifics yet on terms of projects, but you've worked on some mega projects, underground tunneling projects, which I think a lot of civil engineers would be really excited to work on. And then you moved to Paris, a wonderful and, and beautiful place to work on another really large infrastructure project. Before we move forward, I've got to talk to you a little bit about that decision. I mean, there must have been a really big decision to making an international move like that. You know, whenever you're making an international move, it's always a huge decision. And there's a lot of thought that goes into it. But at the end of the day, the experience that you're getting from working in different countries and seeing how different engineers do different things and different construction methods in different areas, the experience that you can gain from that, it's hard to overstate, in my opinion. 
obviously moving to France has its own set of challenges because everything's in French. So you kind of have to learn, you know, how to do things. You're adapting to a new work culture, new codes, new set of norms and a new language. But at the end of the day, it's hard work, but it's extraordinarily rewarding. So let me ask you this. Were you from an area of Canada where they spoke French or did you have to learn French? Everywhere in Canada, French is kind of taught at a basic level. I was from the English side on the West Coast. I was not fluent in French, but I had something to build off of. So do you work every day mostly in French? Yeah, 100%. I spent six months in Brussels, Belgium when I was studying engineering as an abroad program. So I also had to learn French, which is not an easy language to learn. That's for sure. It's a pretty language. So that's cool. All right. So that's a whole other episode, Michael, because I get questions all the time from civil engineers that want to go and in, do international work. So, but we're going to focus today on the infrastructure. So let's get into that a little bit. And before I start to ask you some general questions about underground infrastructure, just for the sake of the conversation and some context, can you maybe talk about whether it's your current project or just like, I want to give the audience an idea of the magnitude of some of these projects that you've worked on. Right now, I'm working on the Grand Paris Metro expansion, and I highly recommend anybody to look it up. It doesn't get a lot of coverage in North America because it's mostly in French and it's a European project. But currently, the cost projections are kind of north of 30 billion euros. And, you know, we're building 200 kilometers of underground large diameter metro tunnels and 68 brand new stations. When it's done, it's going to be you know, one of the most extensive metro systems in the world and the social and environmental impacts of it are going to be substantial. They're aiming to move 150,000 cars from the roads upon its completion. And it's basically setting up Paris to be one of the first cities in the world where you can live basically anywhere in the metropolitan area without a car and be able to, to get to wherever you're working. So it's a very exciting project. It's a very impactful project in that sense, in terms of economic and environmentally, I guess I would say. So that's great. And it sounds certainly like it's as in terms of resume and experience for you. I mean, you must just learning so much there. It's amazing. And that's kind of one of the things that I've noticed when you're working in underground infrastructure is that you learn so much and that you collaborate with so many different disciplines within engineering that anybody that goes that works in this space, you know, they come out the other end extremely well-rounded. For example, right now I'm overseeing the tunnel designs for, you know, a very large segment of this project, and I'm spending about half my time overseeing the finite element modeling of the geotechnical aspects of the project. And then the next day you switch right over and you're overseeing, you know, detailed structural design. And before I started working in tunnels, I had never really seen that kind of adaptability in engineers. And it's one of the things that's really excites me and, and has impressed me. Let's get into some of the benefits of putting infrastructure underground and why it's important. I guess I'll just ask you right off the bat, why should we put infrastructure underground? Whenever I think about this myself, you know, I kind of come up with four main reasons. There's social reasons, there's resiliency reasons relating to the resiliency of the infrastructure itself and the city. There's environmental reasons and there's economical reasons. The social reasons, you know, these are, <laughs> this is one that kind of gets, uh, not very focused on in the media, you know, underground projects sometimes get a bad rep because there's projects like the Alaskan Way Viaduct and the Boston Big Dig, which, you know, despite them drastically improving the land use around the project, you know, they've got a lot of bad media coverage because they're vastly over budget and there's a lot of design, political and construction issues related to them. But at the end of the day, 
we all agree that infrastructure is absolutely fundamental for making our cities function properly. And as more and more people move to these cities and land use becomes more and more important, you know, we really need to start asking ourselves, what do we want to be using this land for? And every piece of infrastructure that you can put underground frees up space and it will have some kind of social benefit to it. A thought exercise I like to do is, is you take a city like New York and you take a look at the metro map. It, it's very extensive. It's impressive. And you imagine what that city would be like if you were to move all that infrastructure onto surface. You know, the social impact would be huge. From a resiliency standpoint, whether we like it or not, we are dealing with climate change. And with climate change comes, you know, more extreme storm events, more extreme flooding events. You've had a few guests on your podcast that have you know, been talking about how we can't really design our infrastructure for the design floods anymore. The reality of tunneling is that these underground infrastructures aren't exposed to the same issues. You know, if you have a massive windstorm, tunnel's not affected. If you have a flooding, tunnel's not effective. And not only that, but the tunnel can be used to help deal with the stormwater management. And tunnels generally perform very well under seismic conditions because of their confinement. These pieces of infrastructure can really contribute to the resiliency of a city. Michael referenced our, the second episode of this series. We had Professor Bilal Ayub on talking about this idea of adaptive design, where you can't just design to historical weather patterns anymore because they're not holding true. But we also can't design for these ultimate, ultimate worst case. There's some adaptive processes they're developing, but it's a good point, though. The underground is not as exposed to these types of things. Yeah, and I think a great example of this is the city of Tokyo. The city of Tokyo is something like 38 million people. It's the largest metropolitan area in the world. And if you look at how much infrastructure they put underground, it's quite incredible. And that city is you know, right in a typhoon corridor, and it's one of the most seismically active regions in the entire world. So they're a population that's really embraced this, this resiliency aspect of underground engineering. And I recommend, if anyone's interested, to look up the Tokyo Catacombs Project. It's probably the most impressive stormwater management project in the world, in my opinion. It sounds to me like because you're overseas and you're working internationally, you have a good working knowledge of projects that are going on globally. Like, for example, the, the example you just gave, whereas I feel like a lot of engineers that I talk to based here in the U.S., they're very focused on their local municipalities. When you have all these big picture or this information, you have more information to draw on when you're just dealing with everyday things. Do you find that to be true? I definitely find that to be true. And, and it's one of the things I touched on earlier is that when you work in these different areas, you see how different cities do things. You see how different design groups do things. And you see how different pieces can fall into, into order in a different way. And it can absolutely be useful for sure. All right. So you hit the first two. The next one was, I believe, economic. Yeah. The economics of underground tunnels, under underground infrastructure, you know, they, they sort of remain the biggest barrier to getting these projects realized. And generally, the cost of an underground piece of infrastructure is higher than, than the surface equivalent. And that gets a lot of attention. And it's not always the right way to go, in my opinion. You know, especially when you start to consider that these underground projects, you know, their lifespan is generally a lot longer, assuming they're designed properly. Their maintenance costs are a lot lower. And since they're underground and protected, they perform better under 
extreme weather events and seismic events. So they can cost a lot less to prepare and put back into service. So once you start accounting for all these life cycle costs, it really becomes more feasible and appealing. That's interesting. We've talked about that as well in the podcast. We especially did an episode with a gentleman who has a, who runs a, a site called Smart Towns. And, and he talked about the fact that a lot of these municipalities take on these big projects and then they go under because they don't consider the maintenance. But in the same regards, I would hate to have a project that is too expensive up front that they don't do it because of that cost. And then, like you said, it's actually better for maintenance and long term. So I guess that's just something that needs to be maybe evaluated and taken into consideration on these projects. Probably we as engineers need to be do a better job at communicating that to the public because another thing I touched on earlier, you know, whenever one of these projects makes it into the news, it's because it's 100, 200% over budget or late on schedule. And that gets communicated a lot more effectively than kind of the long-term benefits. All the metro tunnels that you've built in New York, for example, were successful projects and they don't get talked about on a global scale. All right. And the last one was environmental. Yeah. So environmental, you know, this is probably one of the most obvious ones. If you have any piece of infrastructure, it has a footprint on surface. If you put that underground, its impact is going to be less just by its very, very nature. So if you take a hydroelectric project, for example, and you have pen stocks, you know, you could split an ecosystem in half, whereas the underground alternative, you have two portals that will be impacted, but the entire line of the pen stock can be totally untouched. And I mentioned the, the Grand Paris project, and that's sort of a project that's going to get 150,000 cars off the road that couldn't be realized if it wasn't underground, just because of the density of the metropolitan area itself. So there you have the four primary benefits of the underground, of infrastructure underground, is the social benefits, the resiliency, the economic and the environmental benefits. I'd like to take a quick break here to once again thank our sponsor for the Civil Engineering Podcast Infrastructure Series, Red Vector. The team at Red Vector has crafted the ultimate training subscription for engineers. With the AEC Pro subscription, satisfying continuing education requirements is just the beginning. Take a deeper dive into your field of study and advance your career. Gain unlimited access to nearly 1,500 courses regularly updated with new content as well as license management tools to renew over 400 licenses and certifications. Plus, when you purchase now, you'll receive a $100 credit towards an EMI Engineering Management Accelerator online workshop. To learn more, visit www.redvector.com. Let me ask you this question. Obviously, this idea of underground I mean, civil engineering projects. There's a lot of civil engineering projects underground. Why would you consider this a great industry? I would consider it a great industry for a number of reasons. One, you know, we've been talking about working internationally, provides a lot of opportunities for you as an engineer. The underground engineering skill set is not as common as some of the other disciplines. So there's always a demand for people with this expertise. And I would argue that we as an engineering community, we agree that investment in infrastructure is absolutely needed. And as more and more people move to our urban areas, we're running out of space. The use of underground space is going to become more and more important. And the demand for engineers with that skill set is just going to keep rising. So long-term career-wise, I firmly believe that it's a good, good move. Another big thing is just how it develops you as, as an engineer. I mentioned before that I work in two worlds, the geotechnical world and the structural world. 
and to get those opportunities to combine those two skill sets and to really develop those two skill sets at sort of an above average level is awesome. To have that recurring on multiple projects, I think as a civil engineer, it's one of the most interesting things you can work on. Right. It presents like kind of this complex layers of different civil engineering skills in these projects. That's right. So, Michael, what are some of the challenges of underground construction? So some of the challenges of underground construction, I'm more on the design side, but naturally with these projects, you have to work with the construction side of things. You get a little bit of a feel of it. And basically, a lot of it comes down to building you know, traditional civil structures in a confined space. Once you've excavated your underground space and you need to build a rail line or a station or put some uh, hydroelectric turbines or whatever civil works you're doing, you're doing that in a confined space that probably only has one or two entry or exit points. So there's a lot of logistical challenges associated with that. And then the other one that I would say is probably the biggest challenge, and it's also the biggest challenge in design, is the amount of uncertainty that's involved in these underground projects. So if you take a tunnel, for example, you might have 20 kilometers of tunnel that a geotechnical expert has gone out and done a geotechnical investigation, and you have as much data as you can possibly afford, but you're still trying to map out the the underground conditions and the groundwater conditions based on a few select points on a huge project site. So you're trying to design for things that you don't really know. There are certain unknowns that you know are unknowns, but there's always unknowns that are unknown, for example. Yeah, an old professor of mine really said it best. He said, for these underground projects, you're looking at boreholes and it's like looking at a classical painting through a straw and trying to figure out what painting you look at. It's really difficult. You said you're on the design side mostly. That's also a big challenge in terms of underground design is the uncertainty. Are there any other challenges around designing these projects? Other than the, the uncertainty and learning to manage that risk, there's just the multidisciplinary aspect of things. So I've touched on it a few times, but you know, one day you're doing finite element modeling for geotechnical, which is a fairly high level geotechnical calculation. And then you might be doing reinforced concrete structures, structural design for a seismic condition. So, you know, a fairly high structural calculation and you need to be adaptable to work in different disciplines and to communicate with different disciplines. For example, if you're working on a water conveyance tunnel, the loading conditions and the failure mechanisms are totally different there than they are for a metro tunnel. So you need to be able to communicate with different disciplines and and understand what they're talking about. Based on your experience of working so much on these underground projects, do you see underground construction and infrastructure projects becoming more common in the years to come? I absolutely do. And the big reason is that we're running out of space to put the infrastructure on surface, especially in transportation. You know, especially in the U.S., a lot of these underground metro projects are very common in Europe. But in the U.S., it seems like these are becoming more and more common as being so reliant on the automobile is causing congestion problems that are very difficult to deal with. And it seems like these metro projects are becoming more and more common. And I think that's a trend that's only going to continue. And I know that the uncertainty issue is an issue, obviously, because you can't see what you can't see. But are there any tools or are there any methods or anything that can be done now or in the future potentially to reduce some of the uncertainty? I recognize that there will always be uncertainty underground. Is there any technologies that you know of or do you think that there will be people trying to do something that help? I mean, I know that there's some of these 
technologies already in terms of utilities where you drive over the road and you try to identify them. But I'm just wondering if there's any ways that the risk might get reduced. As far as reducing the risk, there has been so much headway being made by the geotechnical community and the geophysics community. You know, you have ground penetrating radar, you have all sorts of different kinds of drilling, in situ testing, all sorts of things to gather as much information as possible. You're usually going to have multiple geologists involved, and they're going to just give you the, their general understanding of the you know, mechanics of this ground. But you're only going to be, ever be able to gather so much information. And I think where the real headway, where the real difference is going to be made is how do you manage that risk? And there's a lot of probabilistic methods, and there's a lot of engineers who are real expert in especially on the geotechnical side of things that are that can give you mechanical parameters that kind of account for all this risk. And I'm not an expert in that. And, you know, I've had a few conversations with some of these guys and you you start to realize just how advanced some of these risk management probabilistic assessments are. Let me ask you this question. Are there any in terms of someone wanting to work in underground civil engineering, let's call it, is there a specific types of training you need? I mean, obviously it sounds like your geotechnical training and coursework was probably very beneficial. Is anything specific outside of that? You basically need either a civil engineering degree, geological engineering degree. A lot of schools are starting to do kind of underground construction and underground design specific degrees. So those are starting to become more and more common. But at the end of the day, you know, everything that I learned in my undergrad and master's degrees were sort of a base. Everything that I do in practice, I've learned on the job. So really the best thing that you can do is go work for a company on an underground project. And in my experience, at least, the community, the engineering community that works on on these things, they want more people to come in. They want to teach. They want to spread this knowledge and expertise. It's an excellent area to work in from that respect. Right. So along those lines, as we start to get close to wrapping up the interview here, Let's talk about that career. There's obviously career opportunities in this field. What are some of the benefits and the challenges of working internationally? I know you've had big jobs in Canada, US, Australia, France. Talk about that a little bit because it's a question I get from many civil engineers. So there's several benefits. Adaptability. You know, if you're constantly working in, in projects that have different codes, different unit systems, different calculation methods, different norms, et cetera, you're constantly adapting to these new methods of calculation. And I think that really, really develops you as a civil engineer, and it's very, very valuable. I mean, the other thing is that if you're willing, you know, if you stay in one city your entire career, you might get one or two mega projects in your career. But if you're willing to be mobile and relocate to other cities, you know, the potential for you to work on sort of world-class projects greatly increases. Yeah, those are two benefits that I would definitely emphasize. I like that because that is a question that I get from people. How do I work on world-class projects? So that's good to hear. Before we end this segment here and jump into our hot seat segment, I know you wanted to say a few words about professional licensing. Why don't you talk about that a little bit and the importance of that? As far as professional licensing goes, I've been through the process in both Canada and California. So I have a PNG and a PE. They're both completely different systems. You know, in Canada, it's a lot more experience-based. In the U.S., it's a lot more technical-based. and It's a lot of work, and I know that it can be really daunting for a lot of people, but it's worth it. And I think the whole system is important for keeping our industry, you know, at a high level of competency. It's keeping us honest, and it's keeping the public trust in our industry, which I think is extremely important. 
I don't regret for a second getting my licenses, despite the fact that I work in France now where neither of my licenses mean anything. But just going through that process really makes you sharpen your pencil, really makes sure that you are solidifying engineering concepts in your mind. And I don't think that there's any downside. I agree with that. In fact, I know a friend who he's an engineer. He said that one point in time, his boss said to him, you're not an engineer, you're a professional engineer. He said that kind of really hit home with him and really gives you that level of professionalism and, and credibility. All right, we're talking with Michael Maines here about underground infrastructure. He's given us some really interesting, really interesting stuff here, especially these four benefits of underground infrastructure being the social benefits, the resiliency, the economic and environmental benefits. And we also talked about some of the challenges in terms of construction and design. And now what I'm going to do is ask Michael to stick around here for a minute come back and we're going to ask him some questions about his professional development to finish this one off. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for our Civil Engineering Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode is brought to you by our infrastructure series sponsor, Dan Foss. By 2050, 2.4 billion more people will live in cities. That's going to present a lot of challenges for those of us that work in engineering. As you heard in this interview with Michael Maines, we need to build better, smarter infrastructure to support such a significant population increase in urban centers. Danfoss has made it their mission to help pave the way for the communities of tomorrow. They have been developing solutions that make a difference for the past 85 years and their latest innovations are showcased in a project called Danfoss City. You can go to the fully interactive Danfoss City website right now and see their solutions in action. Smart energy systems, efficient buildings, raising construction sites, just a couple of areas where you can experience how Danfoss is part of the sustainable development of strong infrastructure. Go see for yourself at city.danfoss.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. All right, we're talking with Michael Maines about underground infrastructure, but now it's time for the civil engineering hot seat. You ready, Michael? I'm ready. All right, first question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning ritual or lunchtime ritual, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to you being a successful professional? Things that I do on a daily basis, I don't have any specific rituals. But um, one thing that I do find is really important to do regularly is exercise. So I try and get out and run three times a week or go to the gym or on weekends, go camping, be in nature. Just do something that kind of changes up the routine and lets you step away a little bit from some of the stresses that you might be encountering in the work environment. I think all civil engineering projects can be stressful, but I would imagine when you're working on these massive underground projects. There's just another component of that. So it's good that you try to disconnect and get away a bit. Next question. What is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you found to be extremely helpful for you in your professional or personal development? I guess I don't really have a specific book to recommend more than just reading in general. If I had to give one book that's uh, extremely relevant to the subject of today's talk is a book called The History of Tunneling in the United States. It's a book that I actually got at a conference published by the Society of Mining, Metallurgy, and Exploration. And it, yeah, it basically just lays out the history of tunneling in the United States, obviously. And, you know, it really makes the case of why it's 
this infrastructure is critical and how the United States wouldn't be what it is today without it. I'm a big believer in really understanding the history of your industry and what you're involved in, in terms of being able to move it forward. So it's great to hear you talk about that. All right, next question. In terms of an engineering manager that you've had, and, and no need to name any names here, but if you can think of the best engineering manager that you've had in your own terms, what would be one or some of the qualities that that person exhibited? It would be patience and making time to mentor you. I've had a mentor in the past who had been working in the industry for something like 40 years. I'm not sure the number, but he was calm and measured and patient with me as I was going through my learning process. And if you can find a mentor that's willing to have that patience with you and to take that time to teach you, it can be enormously valuable. All right, I've got one final question and we call it the critical civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? You know, the biggest piece of advice that I would give is spend as much time that you can spare learning on the things that you didn't learn in your engineering degree. Things like recognizing opportunity, being able to position yourself to seize opportunities when they do present themselves, learn networking, If you're working on site, go talk to the guys on site because you may have a degree in structural engineering, but the guy that's been tying rebar his entire life can probably teach you a thing or two. So it's these things that are not necessarily technical, but will absolutely help you find success in your career. Michael Maines, thank you for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to come on the Civil Engineering Podcast and share some thoughts on underground infrastructure and also just some general career advice. I think our listeners are going to love this. I know, like I said, we get questions and questions about international work. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this infrastructure series as much as I did. I mean, I really got into it. We had some big time guests. We had, of course, Kate Harris, president and CEO of Stanley Consultants. We had Michael Burns of AECOM talking about the risk associated with these infrastructure projects and how to evaluate it and how to deal with stakeholders. We had Dr. A.U. come on from the University of Maryland talking about how we can't just use traditional weather patterns anymore to predict and do our design because it's not that predictable anymore. And of course, we kicked it off with ASE National President Christina Swallow, who was just very energetic and really got the series off to a flying start. And Michael Maines, a 29-year-old, you know, after all these heavy hitters, finished it as strong as you can finish it. So I just really enjoyed doing this series. We're trying to do some other series and put together some other series for you. Actually, we're working on one that'll happen kind of across the pond that Chris will be hosting over in London at the Institution of Civil Engineers Conference, which will be fun. You'll hear more about that one soon. And before I let you go from this episode, I do want to just remind you that we do run a five-week online workshop called the Engineering Management Accelerator Online Workshop. You may have missed our September 2018 session, but that's okay because we launch another session in mid-October. So you could still get in for that one at engineer2manager. That's engineer2manager.com. And if you're an individual, just click the individuals button or the blue button in the right column and you'll see a video about it. You can register. Your company will probably reimburse you. There's a flyer there to help you with that, but 90% of our students have been reimbursed. Why have they been reimbursed? Because you're working on your management skills. In this course, you're going to learn how to communicate more effectively with team members and clients. You're going to learn how to network and build relationships that'll help you interact with people, whether it's 
prospective clients or your team members. You'll learn how to build your expertise and become a better public speaker. You'll learn strategies and tips for being more productive and more billable, which really is one of our favorite skill building sessions of the course. And then you'll have a leadership session all about high output management, how to delegate effectively, how to identify the tasks that are really going to move the needle for you and your career and for your company. So please, please consider joining us at Engineer2Manager. That's engineer2manager.com. We've had a lot of really good case studies come out of the course, and I hope that you take it and you find some success in it yourself. Please remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 97. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.